great Indian drum recorded near the Mississippi River. The North American Indians are, to be more precise, the first real Americans, have, like the bison and the buffalo, been almost decimated. Many, however, live on in relative safety in an alien urban society, or like hothouse plants in what are known as reservations. I met several real Americans in St. Louis, Missouri, among them Elaine Ryder of the Hopi people. It has, uh, the archaeologists have proven that uh, our, one of our villages was there uh, over 2,000 years ago. So we've been here for, you know, thousands of years. And um, the old Arabi that's been there, and it, um, that's where they, you know, the archaeologists had made them. Is it possible to say at all how many Indian tribes were there? Well, see, there's Indian tribes all over the United States, and uh, in the federal government, there's 482 um, registered, but there's oh hundreds of other tribes yet that have not been registered. But we have not um, um, we have not had any. Um, well, we didn't sign a treaty, and so that's why we're not registered. So the government kind of um, has put us on a sideline, well, some this, of us. Well, this mean that uh, your tribe had never been defeated, in fact? That right, right. We uh, believe very strongly in, uh, we have a blue corn that, that um, we, uh, was given to us in a prophecy that we would always have our land in spite of whatever happened. And uh, it, we don't have a big land now, but uh, because another tribe has come in and tried to take some of it. Uh, but nevertheless, the the blue corn that we have, it uh, it's a medicine. It's we use it for ceremonies and um, for food, for different things of that nature. What sort of government would your tribe have had in the old days? What was the hierarchy? What was the system? Well, they have their own. Uh, we have a chief, you know, for each village. Uh, my grandfather, he, uh, who, um, whom I lived with, um, he was a medicine man and a chief of the village. And uh, this was years ago, mm -hmm. of course. And um, he um, um, was a very good chief. And he and five of other chiefs were thrown into San Quentin to do hard labor because they would not sign a treaty. And uh, they, uh, you know, they had made them work very, very hard, and still he didn't sign it. And um, when he came back, they nicknamed him Hoppy, Happy because he was somehow, oh, he would chant and something about it. He was always, you know, giving out. So in that way, it was very, very kind of unique, mm. you know. How were the uh, chiefs selected? Well, it goes down the uh, family line, you know. So uh, we're a matriarchal society. Um, there's only been once that there was a woman chief uh, at Old Arabi, and uh, but she's, you know, she's gone now. What was the role of women in your tribe? Well, we had to work very hard as far as um, we had to do a lot of um, um, hard work like we we've worked in the fields well the man usually works in a field but we the women do a lot of basket making as such as these they do a lot of the um 
uh, harvest and then there's a lot a lot of work in drying the food in preparation for you know the year so would the woman in the old days have been very secondary to the man well no on the other hand um, they have been very strong together uh, there we believe that there is uh, when it comes to work really there although the man is you know the the head man of the household mm -hmm. yet on the other hand no one is really the main person they work together the man and the woman have the same spirit how would your ancestors have chosen partners for one another say marriage how did they choose well okay there's a, a thing that okay, we're all from different clans and there are certain clans that you can't marry you can't marry in your own clan it's almost like a bloodline um, it isn't bloodline but you know in a hopey way it, it's it comes out in that manner so uh, you you marry someone that's that's not connected to your clan and would this husband or wife as the case may be be chosen for the person um, yeah uh, and also the woman uh, when I mean whatever the woman owns everything that's you know part of the um, thing of the Hopi people the woman owns everything mm -hmm. so um, the men have to rise up very early to you know for planting season and then they you know in the evenings or whenever then they make these kachina dolls such as these which represent spirits of the Hopis and um, they also practice because there's different many I mean we have a great big variety of dances now to go back to your own name mm -hmm. how was that name chosen for you well my grandfather um, he named me that because he said someday I would be a leader and I never really realized that I guess until I became this the leader I um, I started the organization in 1980 because I had seen so much abuse to a lot of our half-breed Indians and some of our full-breed here in the city. And uh, even, the city of St. Louis <clears throat> now. even with me, um, somebody, because I was for education for the children, I was for um, advancement, um, I was for cultural classes and art cultural classes, and uh, some, you know, someone told me that I was a white woman. And I said, um, that's okay. I said, well, then I'm smarter than the average Indian. And um, they resented me a lot because I was, I love children and, and um, they're going to be, <coughs> excuse me, our future people. So that's when um, a lady, Mrs. Murphy, Clint Murphy, was the one that had um, kind of got a hold of me and asked me about my dream because I had told her about my dream years ago. What is your dream? Well, this, of, of what I'm doing now, of the organization, and making it peaceful because there's so many people who are radicals now. A lot of our Indian people, unfortunately, um, I see that, that I can say this and uh, say it freely that I'm thankful now that I was born and raised on a reservation because I know what it's like. Then, what is it like in a reservation? Well, it's just lower pace and it's more calmer. Um, 
pueblos and the Plains Indians are different types of Indians too. They are different. And um, um, so in this way, it's really held a lot different. When, um, when the moment came for you to leave the um, reservation. reservation for the first time, how old were you? Well, the first time I left uh, my own reservation, I was nine years old. Then we moved to uh, Montana to the uh, Cheyenne Reservation. And uh, I was there till I was about maybe 14 um, when I had to go to the Indian school. Now, are Indians expected in the United States to live on reservations? Um, well, right now, our president that we do have, he seems to want to shut down the reservations, which is wrong. I mean, you know, it's like you being thrown out of your own home. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible. And I think uh, a lot of our people who have been raised in, on reservations are different than the urban Indians in a lot of ways because the real uh, strong belief and tradition that you know when you're real small on the reservation and you go through it and all those, you know, um, ceremonies and the dances and things, you really are grounded. So when this has been the problem with a lot of urban Indians that um, have become very um, how would you say very radical is that it's like the old Indians always say um, that when a half-breed finds out that they're Indian before they don't really really accept or they don't appreciate that Indian part but all of a sudden when they find out some of them when they find out that they're half Indian or part Indian they just go hog wild and they destroy what the real Indian's about. Mm. And I see it happening, and it's, you know, it's, it's, I was almost destroyed because I, it was hard for me to cope uh, <clears throat> because I was accused and everything else. That, and I began to really despise being an Indian or a full blood. And, um, but now I said, for once in my life, um, I can say that I'm glad, <laughs> you know. Why did they? Why did they despise you? Why did they criticize you? I think a lot of it was just pride and jealousy. You you left the reservation, was it, and, and mm -hmm. went away from the Indian way of life? Yeah. No, I didn't. No. You no. Didn't. no. See, that's the thing. Is okay. Now there is also another side of the urban Indians. A lot of them, it was not their fault. Okay. In 1942, I think it was. Um, the president had a uh, what we call the uh, the um, uh, relocation act, where they tried to help the Indians to come off the reservation and go <clears throat> into the cities and set up, you know, uh, get them educated into the vocational training. And um, a lot of them went into the cities, but never had the money to move back. And so in turn, they just, you know, grew. Under, uh, in the cities, um, had their families, and the, a lot of the children from those people have never gone back to their reservation. So, so they have lost their roots. Right, right. So this is what we're doing here. And uh, Thelma Barnes, who's a full-blooded Choctaw, she has been doing a lot of 
work with with um, uh, with me in the fact that she is uh, um, well she does a lot of the sewing of the costumes are there many Indians <coughs> in the St. Louis area oh yeah mm -hmm. oh yes there's quite a few and which tribes would be represented there uh, many of them I suppose oh there's many tribes um, there's what Choctaw Cherokee Chickasaws um, um, Winnebago's um, there's Plains Indians as well as Pueblos. Though working at the Institute in St. Louis, Thelma Barnes at Choctaw is quite unusual among the Indians. I don't have a Choctaw name. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the Choctaw people, a bit of past history? Well, there's, um, I don't know how many, but there's uh, a lot. I mean, I don't know the exact number of uh, people, but there are a lot of Choctaw people in, on a reservation in Mississippi. We have three, com uh, seven communities that are kind of splotch, you know, different area, like maybe about uh, 10 or 20 miles apart, but they formed a reservation mm -hmm. in Mississippi. And we have our own um, agency, Choctaw Agency. We have our own health clinic. And we also have our own churches. And there are seven uh, Baptist churches on reservation in, in Mississippi. Where would the older Choctaw people have lived before, where? before they were in reservations? Where would they have lived? Oh, we live in the same area where we was before. See, that's why I said we live so far apart. But there is one area that they put these uh, hospital and school and a community center, and everybody goes there, and that's the reservation there. So the Choctaw people, in a sense, have been lucky. They are where they always right, were. Right, right, that's right. What ways of life do the old Choctaw people have? Okay, the old Choctaw people, the ways of life was uh, more of uh, sharecropping. And, um, well, you know, just to do a little work of this and that. And uh, some of them are lucky have a job for a long time till they retired. Mm. How much of Choctaw history were you told about when you were young? Were there old stories told to you? Oh, yeah. A bunch, <laughs> which I'm glad I, you know, I heard a lot about it because there's nobody to tell me what, you know, what was going on then, mm. right now. What sort of stories would they tell you? What were their favorite types of stories? Well, favorite type of stories, well, actually, it's not really a story. It's to uh, live happily, take care of yourself, and uh, next thing you know, when, when you end on the earth here, you have another place to go, which is better than where we are now and we call it heaven. Hmm. And uh, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, so you take care of all the living things, even the animals, and uh, all except roaches. All except roaches? Roaches. I'm <laughs> not surprised. The best stuff. <laughs> now, what I mean is like uh, eagle, that's the main thing, you know, eagles, and uh, um, a bird, you know, all these different birds. You, you, they set up and sing for us and all the little animals. Like they're killing animals, like squirrel or rabbits. It's all right as long as you kill it and use the, uh, like a fur for uh, clothing and the meat. If you use that and if you need it, if you over abundantly taken, now that, that's wrong, see. So these are the things that I was told. So whatever I get, especially the food and stuff, I don't like to waste it. I like to see it been eaten. Now, you mentioned the eagle specifically. He was, he was very important, was he? 
Uh, yeah, well, well, that's all national, and plus the you know the eagle is the national bird. But way long before they make a national, long time ago, mm. our ancestor had this because that uh, they, it's kind of like a representing. If some people they had a second name, they it was a eagle, maybe like a running bear and stuff like that. Because they if they run fast, running deer. They call it, you know, the name like that. So that's why all these animals are very important to us. Now, Elaine, what are you about to do? Um, this is a um, prayer. A, um, it's a, center, a little ceremony of, of thanksgiving and a prayer. And as this goes, that you will feel this and that you will, you will know it. It's got sage and um, cedar and tobacco, and they all have meanings. But they all go in one and uh, of healing and of a prayer um, and if you have things in your mind that shouldn't be there then when I when I uh, give light it and it burns then you wash yourself and when you wash yourself it's like cleansing cleansing inside so and would the old Hopi people have done this oh yeah in the kivas in the underground dance place uh, it's always burnt, and also in other tribal places. And I was just given, you know. You have it inside in the shell now, do mm -hmm. you? Yes. Um, just about to light it now. Mm-hmm. You know, the strangest thing about this is, even if there's, um, even if there's, um, like, um, you know those um, fire extinguishers. Mm. It it don't even go off. That because this is something. There's a beautiful beautiful smell from it, isn't there? Mm-hmm. From there. Okay. Itana kashitam umiha la yani askwali umitaka dal piu yorik paitam umi yan yuni anta askwali itana. As I wash myself, I wash my mind, and I wash myself with with the smoke to purify myself and to cleanse myself. So may I, uh, you also, cleanse yourself that you might feel. I'll hold it as you do it. Put it over your head. Put your head. Wash your hair. In other words, your mind. Itana Kashimitakadao, Dongokpaitam Umiha Lai Nani Anta. We're grateful. Great Spirit, Mother Earth, you have brought us together that we might have this time. And that is, he takes this back, that it will come to all the people there. We're thankful that this one has come with him to open the doors for him, that we might be given the opportunity to talk of our people. Hey, I need a way here now. 
of this is um, prayer that it will whoever listens or hears this the cedar goes and the spruce and the um, sage and the tobacco goes with you and as you go that their people might feel the spirit of the Indian people. Elaine, we have here in front of us the blue corn. What is the significance of this? Uh, the blue corn, as my daughter was saying earlier, is that um, the legend or the thing was that years ago the mockingbird had put a pile of um, corn around and um, he said all the Indian chiefs come and get them and whatever corn you get that's there's a prophecy with it and uh, it came out that everybody ran but um, they started coming back to sit down and then the Hopi chief got up and so the mockingbird said you have been unstingy and you have not been grabby and you have been wise now you have come to pick up the most sacred corn and and this corn is very short and and it's very um it doesn't it's not as pretty as the other corn but this corn is the richest and in this corn there's food there's medicine and it also represents that the Hopis will live a long life. And like my grandfather now, <clears throat> he died when he was 115, my aunt's 110, I mean 102, I'm sorry. And um, uh, he said, now you will always have your land, maybe not the whole, you know, amount because another tribe has tried to take uh, quite a bit of the land away. So, um, but you will always have your land. You will always have food, but you will always have to work hard. And that's true today. You know, they, the men get up 4 o'clock in the morning to go to the fields to because it's dry farming and the cutworms come. And there's six, seven cutworms around one, one corn, and they may have 200 or more corn stalks and, and the, every single day until the harvest comes. And they then we have a um, then we have a dance harvest dance mm. and um, you know in honoring to the corn that grew into the great spirit in Mother Earth.
Now these are called war dance songs, but they are actually victory songs. They were sung after the fact. They weren't sung before they went to war, as Hollywood has often said they do. This song is a Ponca song, which is in the Sioux dialect. Okay. And uh, this song is Heluska, and this, the Heluska was a, the warrior society of the Poncas, and they're calling him Heluska Zani, Zani. Uh, Heluska, stand up for what you believe. It's not really means stand up and dance, it's stand up for what you believe, and that's the only words in this song. Uh, the most of it is vo what we call vocables, and most of the Indian songs you hear will be in vocables. Uh, a few, because they're intertribal now, and many of the tribes who sing them really don't speak the language that, uh, of the tribe that they're singing, well, the song belongs to, you understand? Now, how many would sing this song in the normal course of events in the as old days? As many people as sit around the drum. The drum is very important. The drum is, it's the Indian heartbeat. There is nothing else. What is the drum made from traditionally? Uh, the drum was originally made from, uh, oh, possibly a log, and then they would use buffalo hide to cover it. And would they beat the drum in sad times as well as happy times? Oh, yes, absolutely. There were certain songs, were prayer songs, certain songs for uh, to honor warriors, certain songs to honor important people. Uh, some songs will have uh, the word nuda hunga. Hunga means uh, chief or leader, and nuda hunga means a uh, the group of chiefs or leaders. See, no tribe had just one chief. There was no such thing as one chief for a tribe. And which is your own tribe? Uh, Cherokee. And where do they live? They would the be southeast, southeastern part of the United States, uh, down around, uh, oh, the Virginias, North Carolina, South Carolina area originally. Now they're scattered through Oklahoma, uh, part of them in Oklahoma and part of them down in the original territory. They were called one of the five civilized tribes. There were five tribes, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, see if I can remember all of them, Chickasaw, the Seminoles, and for the life of me, I can't remember the fifth one. But the Cherokee were called one of the five civilized tribes because as soon as, shortly after they met the settlers, they began changing to uh, oh, a, a way of life that uh, would oh, go along with the settlers' way because they saw that this was a, a way of, uh, oh, an easier way of life, I guess you'd call it. And as a result, they began very early losing their their culture. And a lot of it has disappeared. And today, you have a, a resurgence of uh, searching for the old culture. And it really hasn't come out. Today, all you can get are small booklets that explain what little of the culture they can remember. What effect does playing the drum have on you? Do you get uh, do you get a joining with your past from it? Well, if you ever talk to someone who took drugs, they get what they call a high. This is the way, way I feel after I get up from the drum. This is my natural high. I don't take drugs. I wouldn't dare. But it would, it, you get that feeling of, of just real good uh, feeling uh, that you've, you've done something and done something well. What is it appeals to you most in the traditions and the life of your ancestors? The idea that I have something to hang on to. The American people, the white, uh, the non-Indian American people, they have no culture of their own. There is no American culture. 
we have you know baseball we have football we have basketball and we have a unique form of government and that's it there's nothing else that's truly 100 percent american the indian has a background you know the european people they can trace their background back thousands of years the indian people can trace their background back thousands of years the white man in this country has to go back to his european background he can't say I am an American because he can only go back so many hundred years and that's it. How would your Cherokee ancestors have earned their living? How did they live in those times? During those times, primarily by uh, uh, agriculture and this was enhanced by hunting, hunting and uh, fishing and then agriculture, but the staple was agriculture. Did you have a very strict hierarchy within the tribe? Yes, absolutely. This is probably the only tribe, or one of the very, very few tribes, where uh, the, uh, well, I'll use the term chieftainship, that's not a good word, but uh, it was inherited. It's probably one of the very few tribes, or maybe the only tribe, where it was inherited. What sort of belief do they have, say, in elemental things like a god? There was a, a single God. Now, this is something that uh, if you talk to people, they'll say, oh, uh, they admired the sun or they used the sun as a God. The sun wasn't a God. They recognized that the sun was important, just like everyone recognizes the sun is important for crops. They recognized also that the moon was important. But these weren't gods. They had their single God, just as every tribe in this country had a single God. They, what was their approach to, to marriage? What role did women play within the tribe? Well, that depends on the individual. Now, among the Cherokee tribe, uh, a woman wasn't exactly subordinate, just as no woman is really subordinate. You know, if the man gets out of line, why well, she's going to get him in line one way or another. And uh, this was true among the Cherokee. The man, the male, was really the uh, dominant, played the dominant role, and the female of course, the female was in charge of all agriculture. The man was in charge of clearing the land, but it was the woman's crop. And also, the man was in charge of the hunting and defense and, of course, warfare. Who chose whom? Did the man choose the woman? Or oh, yes, absolutely. The man chose the woman. And was it on a very firmly selected basis? How did they go about it? Uh, they weren't allowed, of course, to select a woman from their own clan. They had to select a woman from another clan. And of course, like all, uh, I guess, all uh, cultures, you weren't allowed to select a relative. Yeah. Now, um, I'm not, this I'm not sure of. Among the Cherokee, I don't know whether they practiced uh, uh, polygamy or not, but in some tribes, it was perfectly all right to take more than one wife. It wasn't common, but it was okay. But you had to marry your wife's sister. That way you kept harmony in the family, you see. They were very wily people, weren't they? Yes, they were. They weren't, they weren't stupid people by no means. How did a young man become a warrior? Primarily just by saying, hey, I want to go on this, uh, on this raid or on this, uh, I want to take part in this fight. And usually the first time or two that he went out, um, the first time or two he went out, he took a subordinate role of some kind. And then as he showed that he was uh, qualified, I guess you would call it qualified, hmm. then uh, he would be given a more important role, and finally he was strictly on his own. And each warrior fought on his own. They didn't uh, fight as a unit. 
And this is one of the reasons the white man was able to uh, defeat him so easy is because they, they didn't go to war to kill one another. They went to war to count coup. And this is something that the Indian couldn't understand about the white man, and it's something the white man took advantage of. It was better to, to touch a warrior, uh, an enemy warrior, than it was to kill him. And among the Plains tribes in particular, they had a special stick. They called a coup stick for this. And uh, someone else may even kill an individual, but the first guy to touch him got first honors. And when a battle was won or when a war was won, there would be great celebrations? Uh, it depends on what took place. Uh, we don't, you can't use the term war as, mm. as, we, know as, as we know it. It was, it was simply a skirmish, and there was, they were never after, out to uh, conquer someone else's land. I shouldn't say that because the Iroquois, uh, about the time the white man landed, the, the Iroquois, the, uh, the Oneidas and the Senecas and those people, they were in the process, actually, of controlling all of uh, northeastern United States and Canada. And given another hundred, two or three hundred years, they probably would have. In other words, we, they were in the process, as I see it, they were actually in the process of doing what happened in Europe thousands of years before, when those tribal peoples um, actually divided up certain parts of Europe. And I, I, I honestly believe that that's what was taking place in this country at, at the time that uh, the white man landed. What's your name? Ruthann Adams. And you have a, an Indian name, too? On my grandfather's side, it's S-P-I-V-I-E, but I cannot pronounce it right. Now, which tribe was that? Cherokee. Uh, now, tell us about your grandfather. He had a strange connection with Ireland. Well, he was born raised in Ireland. He had a twin brother. Um, he came from Ireland to Americas. He met my grandmother in um, Virginia, which was Cherokee. And they traveled on west on out here, uh, past St. Louis area out in the county and raised a family of about 14 children there. And um, so I am Irish and Indian. <laughs> Did you hear much about him, your grandfather? Well, I was awfully little, but I do know that um, he had a brother that was a judge in Ireland, which was an Otis. I don't know his name. Um, but they do definitely know that their name was Otis. And where exactly did he meet your granny? All I can tell you is in Virginia, through uh, one of the Cherokee camps, I would imagine, at that particular time. He was obviously passing through at the time. Yes. Was there much intermarrying went on at that stage, I wonder? A lot of Irish and Indian married. Mm. Did he adopt any of the Indian ways? No. He stayed He's, Irish? He was Irish. Now, are you really interested in the Cherokee ways yourself? Yes, very interested. Mm. And also my Irish heritage. You've never, you've never obviously been to Ireland. No. I hear it's beautiful. <laughs> it is. It is, when it's not raining. Well... What, what sort of wisdom do you think would you have got from your Cherokee ancestors? Kind of wisdom? Be family. Take care of your family. What were Cherokee women like uh, as mothers, homemakers? My grandmother, hardworking. She was strictly family. Everything in the Indian way is for your children uh, and your husband. 
It's mostly just hard work taking care of your family and your children. There's mm -hmm. not a lot of, then there was not a lot of outside influence. You stayed home, raised your family. What sort of food would they have eaten at that time? What was the favorite Cherokee food? Was there a particular diet they liked? No, because we mostly, everything just come out of the garden. And grandfather always had a humongous garden. And uh, I think he pretty well taught my grandmother to cook Irish. And he taught, she taught my mother to cook, of all things. <laughs> and it was just a lot of potatoes, beef, um, stews, biscuits, breads. Is it difficult nowadays to rear Indian children in North America? To rear, to rear them as Indians, keep the culture? Yes, it's it's hard. Um, that's what this society is about. Is, and I know they're springing up all over this United States <coughs> to bring our heritage back and to keep it. That's very important. Tell me, I was saying that the Indians over the years have been treated very badly, say, especially in films. We only see them always as the baddies, as they say. Oh, yes, that, that is really bad because a lot of times you see these movies, mm -hmm. they are not, uh, they're not really the Indians. Mm -hmm. that, the reason I said is because it's just the mask that they use. They painted their face. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, they play as the Indian, which is bad. Like she said, it's, it, it is bad. And then, in two, that they uh, have uh, bring this program, and they charge a lot to the non-Indian, and especially, <coughs> especially the non-Indian. They gonna, you know, somebody that are really interested in the Indian, they gonna believe that, mm -hmm. and they gonna spend so much money to go into this kind of area, which is wrong. Mm -hmm. It hurts. In turn, it hurt us. Are these films very hurtful to you when you see them? Yes, very much, because I know. Deep down inside, it ain't nothing but a play. And when, when we do such things like, you know, like they do some stuff, we, we're not playing. Mm. How do you impress it on your children that what they see in the movies is not true about the Indian people? Well, just we just teach them from where we're, just like they were talking to you at the home base, we teach them. Then they're able to pick out themselves and they know that that's not true. And this is why it's so important that we teach the cultural uh, ways here at the society and this is why that we started the American Indian Society and uh, because we want to break that uh, stereotype uh, show uh, now Iron Eyes Cody is a little uh, you I know that they, he's gone over to uh, mm -hmm. your country mm -hmm. in different places but um, he's he's a very very uh, fine person and he's very deep but like he said, uh, I just saw him not too long ago again, and he said, well, you know, he said, this is one of the things that I've been trying to talk to these people in the movies, that the Indians are not all fighters like they portray them. They're not all mean. That really deep inside, the true Indian is a very fine, refined person. He's uh, reserved as a rule, and um, uh, he said, and this is what when i go to different places i try to tell the people this and like he cries a tear on a commercial he said that our country that the, the people the white men and all the others have mistreated the land 
you know, that's that's a big hurt to the Indian people. And when these people get on these rena- uh, rampages of, you white men took all my land away, that's a bunch of garbage. It's really garbage because um, these people don't even know what they're saying. And they don't appreciate, they, they have no respect for themselves or anybody else. And this is what we tell our children now, is that because we work with a lot of the half-breed children, that they must learn to appreciate both the Indian side and also the white side of themselves. Because you cannot tear that apart, that's, their, that's them. And so we have to learn to appreciate both sides. For instance, like uh, Shirley, the, the uh, artist, her mother, as in the picture here, you, you know her mother's Indian, okay? But she doesn't uh, look completely like her mother. But this is where the, we're working with these. They're pulling us together. They give us, like Thelma and I, we, we work sometimes till all hours of the night trying to get things together for the people. But she comes in and helps in other areas. To, so we all, it's an educational experience for both sides. So we do appreciate that you came from your country to come to us, and like the Hopi would say, Asquali. That thank you for coming to see us, to talk to us. Now may our hearts go with you as you go back to your people and share this.